Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 45. I've been thinking for a while now, I would like to do an episode about irrational fears, like worrying about dying in a plane crash or getting eaten by a shark or getting mugged or things like that, when the likelihood of all those things are much lower than, say, getting killed by a meth-crazed rabid donkey or something similarly unlikely but slightly more likely, actually, like, just falling over, just falling kills more people than airplane crashes or um, slipping in the shower. It's way, way more likely that that will kill you one day than uh, Ebola. So I might still do that episode, but it will not have the angle that I originally thought I would use to get into the topic, which was just how bonkers the country had gone over Ebola. Because first of all, that sort of like has passed now. I mean, people are still talking about it, but it was at a, people were at like this crazy panic level at a certain point in 2014 and that subsided. And the other reason that I don't want to use that as the angle is that it has already been done by several other people very, very well. In fact, this is probably my favorite one. Uh, it was done by Russell Howard on his show, Russell Howard's Good News. Well, there's been one story dominating the news, Ebola. Now, here is how it was covered in Britain. Ebola cases in West Africa approach 9,000. Hundreds of British troops are being sent to West Africa. A small number of cases will reach the UK. We can contain it. Britain is at the forefront of preventing the spread. A message for the public. Don't worry. Calm. Measured. In America, not so much. Fox News alert now, the Ebola emergency here in America. The killer virus. Spreading much faster than efforts to contain it. Spiraling out of control. Stop admitting West Africans into America right now. <laughs> Can they go to the movies? Hospitals aren't ready for Ebola. All hell is about to break loose. <laughs> the media have worked the American people into such a frenzy. So during all of this, I was making breakfast one morning and listening to NPR on my phone, and uh, I heard an interview with Danielle Ofri, and she was this doctor in New York who was saying on NPR, please stop being ridiculous about Ebola. Please start worrying more about the flu, which is actually more dangerous. And I just thought, oh, that would be a great way to talk about this topic. But like I said, uh, I decided not to do that. But I do want you to hear the interview that we had because I called her up and we scheduled an interview and we had this great conversation. And at first we talk a little bit about irrational fears, but the conversation then moves on to topics from her book, What Doctors Feel, which is all about the emotional lives of physicians and what they learn and then unlearn when they go out into the, uh, into the field and also we also talk about cognitive biases and other similar uh, phenomena and how doctors deal with those sort of things, how they deal with them differently than other people do. And it's just an interesting conversation that really opened up my mind about things I really hadn't considered before this. And it has really nothing to do with Ebola after a while, but I think it's worth listening to. So that's what this episode is going to have is a conversation with Daniel Ofri all about what doctors feel and what it's like to be a doctor 
and what it's like to have to wrestle with the things that we usually talk about on this show, but as a physician with people's lives on the line. My name is David McCraney. I'm your host. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and you will hear that interview after these messages from our sponsor. I'm driving all over the place right now, getting interviews for a new project. And while I'm doing that, I'm listening to the Great Courses series, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking in my car. I am driving and receiving basically a college-level course on thinking and metacognition and misinformation and what shapes our thought processes and biases and fallacies and uh, conspiracy theories and everything from top to bottom. When it comes to the neuroscience and the philosophy itself of logic, I'm getting that straight from Dr. Stephen Novella, professor of neurology at Yale, host of the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, guest on this show, and someone that I've actually uh, I've been able to meet in person. We've uh, we spoke on a panel once about uh, conspiracy theories. Very, very cool. I can't imagine anyone who would be better to teach this course, and you can get this right now. For 80% off the original price, along with eight other of their best-selling courses, by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's my special offer, and it doesn't last forever. Actually, actually, someone on Twitter yesterday asked me uh, about how they wanted to go ahead and get one of these great courses things, and the offer had expired, and they asked, was, would there be another code? Because they were going through the backlog and they were listening to an episode from a while back. I said, yes, this episode will have the new offer and it will be active and alive whenever you first hear it. So that's what you do. You go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart and you can again get it at 80% off. That's insane, guys. 80% off. They have more than 500 courses about things from science and history and more. And they're really, really, really cool. You can watch people on DVDs. You can listen to them on the CD. You can listen to them through apps. You can listen to them at your on your desk uh, through your computer. And look, if you want to get an idea of what this would be like, what this course would be like, what this person would be like, just go back and listen to that episode with Stephen Novella. And then get this offer as fast as you can. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Danielle Ofri is a doctor. She is an internist at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. She is also a writer. She is a commentator. She's appeared on CNN, NPR. She's written for the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times. Her lectures go out to... Uh, audiences around the world and uh, people say that they're very nice and she's written this book called what doctors feel which is about how emotions affect the practice of medicine and uh, she recently whenever the ebola panic was going all over the united states she talked about something called emotional epidemiology which is the 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 way that we study and react to the spread of fear the way fear becomes contagious across a population so at first we'll be talking about that but then we will go into talking about what doctors actually do experience, what they learn, how we should be interacting with them better as patients, how they can interact better with us. And you will hear how doctors deal with logical fallacies and cognitive biases. Um, 
and how they have to, you know, deal with those in a situation that might be life or death. I think you will enjoy it. This is Danielle Ofri, MD. So, um, Danielle, you said you, you sometimes mention something, um, whenever you're interviewed or, or whenever you write about these subjects that, um, fascinates me and, and I'd like you to elaborate on it if you can. It's, it's called emotional epidemiology. What is that? Well, I actually, it was a, a term that came to me, um, during swine flu, um, because I remember during swine flu, and I ended up writing about this for the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, all my patients were crazed for the swine flu vaccine. This is back in the spring. They were so desperate. They were, my voicemail was sagging under the number of calls for the swine flu vaccine, which, of course, hadn't been developed yet. It took several months, as you remember, to get it developed. People were in a panic. Um, and when it finally did come, you know, a little later on that year, my patients were all very skeptical, and most of them ended up declining it. And what was interesting is that they wanted the swine flu vaccine, even as they were rejecting the regular seasonal flu vaccine, even though swine flu is just another kind of influenza. But that didn't make any sense. And so the idea that it's not so much the epidemiology of the disease spread, or in addition to that, it's how it's perceived. And I think that has a huge uh, amount to do with it. What I also found at the same time, my kids were in elementary school at the schoolyard. Parents would ask me about the swine flu vaccine when we didn't have it. Again, desperate for it. But as soon as they had it and gave it out for free in the schools, most of the parents refused. So, um, and of course, we're, we're probably seeing this again right now with Ebola, correct? Exactly. <clears throat> um, many of my patients, you know, again, when I talk about the flu shot, they... they um, combine it with Ebola. It's fascinating. I, I don't want the flu shot because I might get Ebola or I don't I want to get the flu shot so I can prevent Ebola. And I try to explain that Ebola, influenza, completely separate. Yet, it's people's perception that has a much, a much greater effect on their decision to get treatment than the facts of the illness. And if we don't confront the emotional response, we won't be able to treat the disease well. Uh-huh. And I know, I know just from in my personal life uh, with my, you know, my parents, they live in the deep South and they live somewhere where, uh, there is no Ebola right now, but, but there's, you know, there are already rumors going around that there's, there's Ebola in certain counties and things like that. Um, Ebola has sort of become the scariest thing on earth to many Americans, at least right now. And as you pointed out, um, many of those same people who are glued to their televisions waiting to see if Ebola has made it to their county, they, They've yet to get a flu shot. And they probably won't. What, what's going on in the minds of people who um, at one are, are vigilant about uh, one thing and then they don't take the necessary uh, precautions to protect themselves against something that's much more likely? Well, we are terrible estimators of risk. If you ever read the work of uh, Kahneman and Tversky, the mm-hmm. psychologist, you know, we... we Exactly. We look at Ebola and see that as riskier than flu. And I tell my patients, you know, it's, it's you know, riskier to cross Second Avenue. You know, that, <laughs> that's, you know, that's where you take your life in your hands. Ebola, your chance of getting Ebola is, is minuscule. But that doesn't register. And I think it's because the way we feel these and Ebola 
you know, strikes this nerve on us. And, and maybe because it fits the, the outbreak narrative. And if you, there's been a lot of writing about this, why certain outbreaks catch our attention. And they all have a very common theme. They, emer- they are emerging infections. Of course, every infection is emerging at some point. But these emerge from the deep, dark, teeming jungles and cities of Africa and Asia, right? Swine flu, SARS, um, Ebola. And then, you know, if they stay in Africa and Asia, like a guinea worm, we don't care about them. But if they emerge out to the Western world, to the upstanding developed citizens, then it takes on this drama because now we have this dramatic arc. And this is why thriller novels are so exciting because they have a dramatic arc. They have an enemy and and a real fear. And so these viruses take hold of our imagination in a way that, you know, Ascaris is a huge infection worldwide, tuberculosis, malaria. We don't think about them at all. But Ebola that's creeping out toward us, that occupies our mind. So our emotional response to illness is as important as the facts. And yeah, I think you've, you've actually mentioned how like they don't make, they don't make movies about, you know, high blood pressure or (laughs) emphysema, not the blood (laughs) blockbuster kind of movie. (laughs) Right. Even though that's going to kill a lot more people this year than, than Ebola is going to, at least in in the United States. Right. Right. Um, but even worldwide, the diseases that kill people worldwide also aren't, they're not making movies, you know, uh, about river blindness or, or diarrheal diseases will kill many more people than Ebola, even though Ebola is a terrible uh, outbreak right now. But there's no movies or thriller novels about that. It's almost like you, you can, um, a disease that comes on the way you're, you're describing it and that is sort of unfamiliar and, and mysterious, it, it can be anthropomorphized. A lot more, you know, it can become, it can take on the role of the villain a much, much more easily than something that moves slowly or something that doesn't sort of ping those, uh, those, uh, those fear points. And, um, and there's also something somewhat salacious about it. If you think about Typhoid Mary, it's a case in point where she became the um, personification of typhoid fever. Not, and if she were an innocent European white woman, of upstanding morals, she wouldn't have made a big blast because she was an immigrant, one of those dark, dirty immigrants, and because she also flouted authority and was had was fairly amorous as well, she be kind of personified the fallen woman who transmits these diseases, and she became a character that captured the nation's imagination. That's it, that's uh, that is so fascinating, and w- before we kind of move out of Ebola. I wanted to, um, to talk to you as a, as an expert, as a professional, as a, as a doctor, um, I, I I've seen, and I myself have countered people, uh, and have kind of argued the point that, you know, like 30,000, 30,000 people or so will probably, will probably die from the flu versus uh, this year versus just a handful of people who may die from Ebola, probably only two or three, maybe, you know, it's not going to be, it's not it's not as likely, and there's a much greater um, threat. You know, flu the flu is a much greater threat, um, and some people will counter that with uh, saying that yeah, but healthy people aren't going to die from the flu. A healthy person can can die from Ebola. That's why I'm afraid of it. What do you think of that sort of uh, that point? Well, there 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 is truth in, in that the deaths of influenza are more likely to be in the elderly 
and, and chronically ill, but of course there are certainly uh, some healthy people who die of influenza. But I also remind people that healthy people transmit influenza. And the way that elderly and ill patients get influenza is often from healthy people. So we have a community responsibility. Um, and, but influenza also makes you quite sick. Even if you don't uh, die, it's a very miserable couple of days. I was talking to one person who had it. In fact, when I gave a, a commentary on NPR, the sound engineer told me she had influenza. That it was the worst week of my life. You know, every bone was so painful. It was horrible. It was a horrible, you know, I didn't die. I didn't die, but it was a really horrible week. Very, very sick. So even short of death, you can be quite sick and quite miserable. So there are many reasons to get uh, your flu shot. So if we're so prone to these irrational fears and these fears are so contagious, how can, you know, lay people, people out in the public, how can we be better at guarding ourselves against this kind of panic? Well, I think to, to recognize it. I, and when you, for one thing, you know, check where you get your news source from. You know, uh, and I watch our governors bloviate a little bit, you know, without consulting their health departments. They're, they're not from the CDC. I really think the CDC has been doing an excellent job. There's a learning curve because this is new. And I think, in fact, we should expect things to change Yet when I watch politicians take cheap shots or, or journalists at the CDC doing a terrible job because recommendations change, it's actually being effective. So we should really get our news from really reliable sources and, you know, and not Fox News and not Governor Christie um, <laughs> or Governor Cuomo. Um, second is that to, to take a step back and think about my fears. You know, can I really get Ebola going to the bowling alley? You really can't, um, but I can get run over by a car if I cross the street, not on the light, or if I don't wear a seatbelt, I'm much more likely to, to, to get injured and try and get a little bit of perspective uh, of these things um, and just take a deep breath and, 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 and step back because it's easy to get in the panic mode, and sometimes that means turning off the news because our, our news system is set up to be an echo chamber. And you'd think that there are hundreds of thousands of Ebola cases in the U.S. based on the news coverage, when in fact there aren't. Yeah, I, I, it's so bizarre because like I, I've re- actually read in, in, in writing about this in the past myself, um, I remember one statistic that stuck out to me and that was you, you're, more likely, <laughs> you're more likely to die uh, moving furniture than you are in a terrorist attack in, a, in the United States. And so it's so, and, um, and it's just, we're so keyed in on a certain kind of, uh, fear and that, that gets rolled into the coverage of, uh, incidents like this. Um, and I can tell in, in your writing and in your interviews, how frustrating it is to see the way the national news organizations go about covering it, especially cable news, um, I've seen in the cable news networks recently concerning Ebola and concerning the CDC's response to it, that the CDC is being painted as, um, by some news organizations as being, um, goofy or being, um, or they're, they're lying to us or they're just trying to, uh, to, uh, calm people down and, and, and keep them placated and, and, uh, and, and, uh, not, they don't want there to be a panic, but we should be panicking. You know, why aren't they telling us the truth? Um, 
How would you recommend if you had like a magic wand, how would you have politicians and television producers and journalists go about talking about this sort of stuff with the public? I think they have to, to really step back and think about what's, what's the purpose? What is the effect of what I am saying? Am I just trying to be heard or am I actually passing on valuable information? And I think that whipping up the public is, is a, you know, a pet, uh, a pet hobby of certain cable news outlets that they're, they get higher ratings if they have all this great drama. Of course you want to tune in if you're panicked, but they really have a community responsibility as, as well. I mean, forget their basic responsibility to truth and facts when it comes on the opinion side to, again, think carefully about what they're saying. I mean, to malign the CDC because you hate government or because it looks like it's not doing what you think it should be doing, think carefully, what should they be doing and what happens if information changes? You know, is that flip-flopping or is that being flexible? Which, and I think it's the latter. And I strongly believe now in the 21-day quarantine for politicians and journalists who are or bloviating too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 21 days in their home. And, and they can come out after that. Right. Yeah. I, I, personally, I, and I tell this to, to, family, to family members, I'm like, that person that's talking right now is not a scientist or a doctor. Why are you listening to their opinion on this? There's a... And we should call them on it. You know, we should write to our politicians and our newscasters and say you're doing a disservice. You know, I mean, criticizing uh, Obama's choice for the Ebola czar, I think before even seeing what this guy is able to do. And maybe there's a reason to pick an administrator rather than a physician or a scientist. Mm-hmm. I could understand that. But before I pounce, let me see what the man can do. Whereas I feel as though for a certain segment of, you know, of the news media, they'll pounce on anything Obama does. So, I mean, he could be donating both his kidneys to the first Ebola victim and they'll still pounce on him for, you know, for pandering or something <laughs> like that. Um, You're right, and, yeah. and, and, but we need to call them on it. Um, I don't want to take up all of our time talking about Ebola, although I really appreciate you setting us uh, down a better path on that because you've written a beautiful book called What Doctors Feel. Um, and it I think at first that seems like it's a strange title for a book. Um, and uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that notion of, um, of even exploring this idea about what doctors feel? Well, you know, when I... Um when I started write, wanting to write a book, something about what makes doctors tick, I, I sent out a call for stories to colleagues and students and friends of friends, and I asked them to, you know, tell me what made you the doctor you are today. Just what, what made you the specific doctor that you have become? And I was really flooded with a ton of responses. And I will say that not one person mentioned the New England Journal of Medicine or Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. They all talked about powerful experiences with their patients that always revolved around a deep and resonant emotion. Nobody wrote about the differential diagnosis of palpable purpura. Um, they all talked about, you know, feeling um, grief with patients, feeling shame at errors, um, joy at making, uh, of helping patients or making a good diagnosis. And, and so I realized that when we look at how we create physicians, we think a lot about their medical school and their training and their board certification, all of which is important, but it's all a baseline. But then what makes a really good doctor? And when you ask people, they'll come up with things that 
are a little on the uh, less quantitative side. You want someone you can trust, someone with a good judgment, someone who will listen to you and understand how you feel. And these much more reflect the emotional states or the, quote, softer sides of what it means to be a good doctor. So that's how I started writing um, the book. Well, so when I visit a doctor, and I assume this is true for many people, I, you know, there's a little bit of theater, there's a little role play, there's some awkwardness. And then there's there's this real sense, though, that I'm on on one side and the doctor's on the other and that we're from we're from different worlds and that maybe I shouldn't get too chummy or crack wise. And it just seems so, so formal as if the doctor is sort of actively trying to not be too, too human, too emotionally expressive. Is that is that a cultural thing? Is that common? I mean, why do you think that is often the way we approach one another? Well, I, I think it is to some degree common. There's, there are cultural roles, and, and, and I'm not saying that we should all be, you know, dancing the horror with our doctors in, in the office, but that we get a good sense of them as a person because much of what informs how they will take care of you is, is who they are as a person, you know, above and beyond the basic scientific knowledge. And I think you will get a gut feeling when you're with a physician, if this is someone that I can trust when I get really sick, when I'm very vulnerable, this is a person I would entrust with my body, with my life. And those are things, you're not looking at their you know, diploma on the wall when you make that decision. You're getting a sense of who they are, how they interact. Are they really listening? Are they respecting my opinion? These are powerful things. Now, you can have a very incompetent doctor with great interpersonal skills, I think that's rare. I think mostly most doctors are probably reasonably competent, but the doctors who we really feel comfortable with are those who have those additional skills. Mm -hmm. And is it um, is this um, this? I I, I I agree with with I'm sure many you you know what I'm talking about here. I think as a patient, I, I want to know. I just want to be assured that my doctor. Um, is invested in the fact that I I'm scared or that I'm um, I'm anxious over what's happening and that um, I need I do need some an emotional response I need that one of the things I'm looking for not is just can you make my foot feel better it's that can you assure me that I'm this is not chronic that this is not going to be forever that, that um, I'm going to get better that I'm I'm anxious you know I'm anxious and I have a lot of emotional needs that I feel like I can't even tell you about because I'm afraid to reveal that vulnerability and to and to and to, and to sort of cloud your judgment over what's going on it sort of seems off limits to even um, to to present yourself as a vulnerable emotional human being sometimes to a doctor is that something that doctors understand I think we we expect that pe people will be in a vulnerable state. I think that some doctors are more sensitive to that. And I think the ability to be aware of that has to do with how well you're in check with your own emotions. So if you think back, let's take the doctor who, you know, has been berated as a student and humiliated and shamed and has never had a chance to deal with that. Um, they may not be in, the, in a good position to feel confident enough to to handle your emotions. They may not have their radar up very well. Um, so uh, in dealing with their own emotions makes you able, I think, to deal with your patient's emotions. Mm -hmm. 
And it must be emotionally exhausting to the medical professional to be sort of washed over in feelings of empathy and compassion and seeing people in pain and in need for hours and hours each day. And, and doctors work very long hours, especially early on dealing with, with people in all these different conditions. How does that um, affect judgment and decision-making? How, how do doctors cope with that? Well, I think the one thing, particularly in the training, is the recognition that it's a very emotionally draining time. So I think that if we have wise mentors who recognize the emotional strain on students, for example, students facing their first death, that's very overwhelming. We as more experienced clinicians may take it more in stride and forget that for a student it can be traumatic. Mm -hmm. Um, Or a student who's been shamed or humiliated, um, again, we you know, may not recognize that's going on, but if we do, we give them a chance to express that and not have those emotions build up, you know, un- unprocessed. Because I think if we don't give emotions their due, they will pop out at another time, usually a less opportune time. And and so it's incumbent upon us to to take care of our emotional side as well as our intellectual side. Mm-hmm. But so, mm-hmm. so often we don't. And you look at, you know, the classic screaming surgeon who's yelling at the nurses, you know, what happened to that person along their training? Why have they lost their ability to recognize the humanity of their underlings? Why are they you know, insisting on stamping on them, I think, because they had all sorts of experiences that themselves never got attended to, never got processed. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot, you know, a lot of this is both on the patient side and, and on the doctor's side is sort of falling into that trap of seeing human beings as 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 able to flip a switch and become purely logical, purely rational, purely empirical, uh, you know, um, perfect philosophically, you know, separated from your emotions and your passions and your, and your drives and all those things that you can just sort of, that you can just simply choose one side of that equation and go with it, you know, during the day and then go, then go home to your family and turn it back on again. It's, that seems to be like, um, that's something that I've seen oftentimes in my own work that, People believe that is tr- possible and true about human beings, and it seems like that would be sort of a dangerous thing to um, to buy into as a medical professional, right? I, I agree. I think that we can, to some degree, in the short term, we can push our emotions aside, and often that's an important thing to do. I mean, it, it may not be the right moment when you're with the patient to have your emotions bubble over, but you have to then give them their due at some other point, that evening, that weekend, because if you don't, they will surely, you know, come back to haunt you. And I think that doctors traditionally look at addressing their feelings as a sign of weakness and so tend to ignore them. Mm-hmm. And and then we know that sometime later they, they will always come back. There was a study that I looked at in my book about oncologists who face death a lot. And, and they spoke a lot about how they compartmentalize their grief. What became obvious is how ineffective that strategy was, that they couldn't compartmentalize it, that it trailed them. One doctor wrote, it was like a shadow that, you know, follows you around and it affected their home lives, but also affected how they cared for their following patients. You know, if a patient died and they felt as though they hadn't been aggressive enough in the care and felt guilty over that, they would often over-treat patients that followed mm. and vice versa. If they didn't feel they, uh, they did too much, they might under-treat even when, when not indicated. So their emotional reactions impacted the, the care they gave their patients. And so I think we have to, again, recognize that this is a reality. To pretend that it's not, this is just folly. <laughs> and that's, 
just, it's just so strange. Like so much of this seems to come down to like doctors are human beings. Let's see them as human beings and then sort of operate. We have a press conference about that. Yes. Doctors are human beings too, as are their patients and (laughs) patients want to be recognized as human beings and they should be. And doctors need to be able to do that. And part of that is recognizing their own humanity. Yeah. In, in your book, you write about how medical professionals are um, aware of certain cognitive biases. Uh, you specifically mentioned things like the anchoring effect and um, some, some attribution errors and things like that. Do doctors take those biases into account and guard mm-hmm. against I, them? I don't, well, I, I think they don't notice. I think that's, that's usually the, 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 the problem. Okay. I think these are often unconscious biases. And so if you look at the research in the cognitive psychology field, um, it's very clear that our emotional state affects our decision-making for, for better and for worse. And, and so if you think about the positive emotions, things or sort of the negative emotions, things that make you feel bad, shame, anger, um, guilt, these um, uh, tend to make people less flexible in their thinking, and they tend to uh, miss the forest for the trees. And so you can imagine how you could make errors that way, and it tends to make you more susceptible to anchoring bias. And in medicine, that's when you, the first diagnosis you, you see, you stick to that no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so in the malpractice field is littered with examples of, of anchoring bias. You know, a patient comes in with chest pain, someone says heart attack, and then the entire hospital admission, you're only thinking heart attack. And so things that, data points that come later that may contradict that, you, you know, you discount, oh, atypical presentation in women or Bengalis aren't like that. And of course, we miss many, many uh, diagnoses. On, on the flip side, people experiencing positive emotions, the kind that make you feel good, joy, satisfaction, uh, these tend to make us more flexible in our thinking. We tend to see that forest um, over the trees, but we can also be susceptible to error, in this case, attribution bias, where we attribute a disease more to who the patient is rather than what the pathological situation is. So you can imagine a patient who comes in with a fever, if they're uh, a drug user or alcoholic off the street, we think, oh, endocarditis from shooting drugs. And if they're a Swiss diplomat with those very nice cufflinks, we think, oh, uh, gastroenteritis or pneumonia. So we, we, are, we can make errors based on thinking who the patient is rather than what their situation is. I've all I've, I've been wondering this for a long time, and I, I was I'm, I'm eager to ask a, a a doctor about this, and that is uh, with things like WebMD and the fact that doc that patients can like load up on uh, internet knowledge before they visit you. Um, if if a patient just starts spouting a lot of things that they've learned online that they in their self diagnosis when you're talking to them, can that um, sway or affect you? Have you have doctors learned to like try to keep that, you know, at bay so that they don't get um, primed to think, to start thinking in one direction or the other? I think we, we try very hard to, to, to keep that from inf- over-influencing us. But, you know, certainly some patients will often come in with a very fixed belief. This is what I have. It's very hard to dissuade them uh, on that. But it can certainly, certainly be a challenge. Yeah, okay. And there's another thing, and I've... Um, when, whenever, when you go through the psychological literature about things like uh, victim blaming and uh, the just world fallacy and, and um, sort, of, sort of that karmic belief that good things happen to good people, bad things get, happen to bad people, people get what they, they deserve, um, 
there's a researcher, Melvin Lerner, a psychologist who he had, uh, he began, he sort of is the, the, the first person to really lay down some real quantified research into this. And he's a psychologist who noticed during his education that as he interned at hospitals and mental institutions, that he kind of, he noticed this, uh, a, com- a compassion fatigue that would set in and that, um, as medical professionals over time could get worn down emotionally and they would start deal. This was in the sixties, would deal with people, um, start turning people into biological machines and sort of disconnecting from them in a certain way in order to stave off this, um, this compassion fatigue. Is that still something that's on the minds of medical professionals today? I I think it's very much on our minds. I think we notice that and and we particularly see that if you look at medical students and you look at the, scales and measures of empathy in particular, it goes down during medical training. I think because students start out with all, you know, the right motivations and feelings, but it becomes beaten down. And I think we recognize this is not good. And if we are losing our ability to be compassionate, A, we're doing wrong by our patients, but B, we're doing wrong by, by us and that we need to pay attention to this. And if nothing else, you can think that those medical students, they are our future doctors. So... Um, we have a vested interest in attending to the their emotional development, and and you know students go through traumatic experiences, and if we don't take time to recognize that, it can be very, uh, very damaging in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go, I would like to um, hear you tell us a little bit about the first time that your beeper went off, because that really, that really fascinated me. Now, I thought it was a. a, a a very touching moment, a very interesting thing to hear about that you don't really hear about from uh, from doctors' private lives. So when I was a first-year medical student, I volunteered to be a part of the rape crisis counseling program at Bellevue. So we uh, we had a beeper and we passed it around morning to morning. And did you get called? It was so nervously exciting. And one morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, I got the beeper went off for the first time ever in my life. And I remember this searing mix of panic and, and thrill and excitement, you know, I was going to be potentially responsible for somebody or something, which had never happened to me. Of course, it never stopped going off for the next 30 years. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I raced to the emergency room and I remember being terrified by the ER. It was like this crazy hive and I, who had no skills and nothing, couldn't even figure out where do you even start. Finally, I found the nurse and she pointed out the patient, the woman who had unfortunately been sexually assaulted, and it was this very um, homeless woman, very shaggy, dirty, um, and she looked just like killed by the street. And I remember walking over, and as I got closer, the stench overwhelmed me. It was so powerfully now odorous. And I remember I thought, I'm going to vomit if I get too close, but I, I have to keep going. You know, this is what I signed on for. Then a roach crawled out mm. of the folds of her sweater and walked down her arm. And that's when I lost it. I, I disappeared. She hadn't seen me yet. And I just, I, I chickened out. I went back and I was sitting at the desk thinking, what am I going to do? I am such a chicken shit here. I cannot get myself to go forward. I'm, maybe I'm in the wrong field. And then um, a nurse aide came by, a middle-aged um, Jamaican woman, a Haitian woman. And she walked over and put her arm around the patient come, let me help you. Let me help you get a shower, get cleaned up. I'll be there with you. And I was in awe. I knew she smelled the same smell that I smelled, yet she was able to overcome that and give of herself. And as they walked by, 
I really had my first object lesson in compassion and empathy. And I tell that story a lot to students because I let them know that, you know, teaching happens in all sorts of places. It's not just your professors and your books. They're all around you. The nurse aide, the guy who pushes the gurney, you know, the patient's mother-in-law are all places where your education comes from. I owe this woman an incredible debt. I'll never know her name. Sure, she was paid minimum wage, but she really impressed upon me what it means to be in a caring profession. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it always makes me... Well, I'll, I'll ask you. You're right here. What 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 made you want to become a doctor? And then after you became one, what made you decide to be a doctor for decades? Well, you know, it's funny because I was really heading toward toward science. I did a PhD. I was going to be in a lab. Um, and I really had no idea. I came from a family of teachers, so I didn't know anything about what doctors did other than what they showed in, in, on TV. But yeah, I went. sounded good. Um, and I was planning to going to neurology, then the lab, but I did my internship in medicine at Bellevue. And I fell in love with kind of being in, in the heart of things. You're with people, you're their main doctor, um, and you can really help people. I know it sounds so cliched, but there's so many other professions where you go to the office, you come back, and what's really changed? But in medicine, and not every day or every patient, but once in a while, you're with someone, and then after that, they're a little better. Maybe mm-hmm. the pain's a little less, or maybe you've cured their illness. There's just nothing quite quite like that. And you get this um, incredibly intense and intimate window into people's lives that are endlessly interesting, fascinating. I'm never bored. I may be overworked or tired or frustrated, but I'm never bored in medicine. Well, I think it's amazing. I thank you for what you do. I I, I want I want people to get your book. The book is is beautiful, and I think that it'll make it'll make you a better um, patient. Um, and uh, I think it's also important for medical professionals to sort of get a hold of this thing and and, and think about compassion, and empathy, and, and emotions, and and um, even cognitive biases and all the other things that you roll into it. Uh, and I'm sure that people are are going to want to um, people are going to want to. Keep up with you, read more stuff from you, find out what you're doing. How could the uh, how can people do that? Well, my website is danielleofrey.com. I post all my articles, and if people are interested, they can you know get on the email list, and I'll keep them in touch with the occasional new article. Um, and uh, you can search any article. There are lots of excerpts from the books as well as podcasts and, and videos. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your uh, incredibly busy day to. Uh, to uh, chat with us for a little while. My pleasure. And now we take a break from our program for a word from a sponsor. When I shaved this morning, it was with Harry's. Harry's blades, Harry's handle, Harry's shaving cream, Harry's aftershave stuff. Look, this is a really cool product. They're a sponsor, and so... When they first became a sponsor, they sent me a sample, which is in this really nice packaging. Everything is very clever and uh, minimal and paper and cardboard. And uh, it looks like something that's like simultaneously old-timey, but also futuristically minimal. It's just really nice. And uh, I remember the first shave I had with this stuff, I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And it was like a magical cream that you just wiped your wet finger over the the spot that you put the cream on and there was no more stubble there. It didn't feel like I was using blades against my skin because they use the highest quality German blades. That's what they're all about. That's how the whole company works. 
they purchased a factory in Germany that makes blades and these high quality, high performing German blades that are crafted by shaving experts are the central feature of their product line. And so as they say, a better shave like this, it respects your face and your wallet because since they are owning all of this and you're buying it factory direct, you can get it cheaper than those crazy blades that have like lasers and gyroscopes and mirrors inside of them that cost a whole lot of money that are in that packaging that requires another knife to get into it. There's This stuff is made for people who just want the best quality blades, not at expensive prices, in decent quality packaging, and it comes to your door every couple of months or every month or whatever you set up on their website. So I really recommend this because it makes a great gift. Like you can, if you don't know what you're going to get someone, you can always give them one of these gift packages and then they can decide to go ahead and uh, become a um, subscriber to the service. I'm a subscriber to the service now. I just got one sample package and immediately after that, I was like, okay, I want this in my life. And now I get it every three months because I have a beard and I don't need to shave everything all over the place. So they ship to your house for free to your front door. The starter set is $15. It's a really cool deal. You get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. And instead of paying $32 for an eight-pack of blades, you can get this for half the price at Harry's. It's better quality, and it's more attractive. And on average, if you use this, you will save $150 every year on blades using Harry's. That is their satisfaction guarantee. Uh, if you want to get this, what you have to do is go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com right now, and you'll get $5 off if you use the coupon code SOSMART, S-O-S-M-A-R-T. That's harrys.com. Enter the coupon code SOSMART at checkout for $5 off and start shaving better today. starts with the letter C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On That's each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie, cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if I pick your recipe and I talk about how awesome it is and I, I describe how good it is and I mention your name and I read your email and all that stuff, then I will also send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. Okay, so this episode, the cookie comes from Beth Goldowitz, and she writes, Being bored with my ordinary chocolate chip cookies and nostalgic for the old Soviet Union, I created these cocoa chocolate chip pecan cookies one wintry afternoon. Hope you enjoy them. I doubt these cookies ever graced the table of a commissar, but if they had, he would have enjoyed them. Oh, that's so fantastic. Nostalgic for the old Soviet Union, thinking about the commissar, commissar and what he would like to eat. This is insane. I love it. Um, so what goes in here? All-purpose flour, baking powder, kosher salt, cocoa powder, butter, brown sugar, cane sugar, large eggs, vanilla extract, semi-sweet chocolate chips, and pecans and dried cranberries, which are optional, and we opted to have them in. So my wife, Amanda, made these, and she said to mention, or she didn't say to mention this, but she said uh, as she was making them, that these were... Uh, really hard to knead like the dough is is not forgiving it is a harsh unforgiving dough uh straight from the old soviet union and if you don't have an electric mixer this is going to be quite a task quite an undertaking for anyone who wants to make these cookies but it's worth it because the whole house smells like chocolate and they look amazing and we're going to try one right now here it is here we go 
old Soviet Union cookie in my mouth. Beth is good. All right, on to some self-delusion news. In this episode, we're going to talk about this study that I first... No, Beth, it's really good. It's a great cookie. I love it very much. Um, it's, it's really chocolatey. I mean, it's like chocolate and salt and chocolate and more salt. And then every once in a while, dry cranberry says, try this. It's a good It's a good cookie. So it's wonderful. I recommend everyone try it out. It only takes 15 minutes to bake. And if you have some electric uh, appliances to need it, it doesn't take that long to put together. Um and you have a book on the way. Thank you so much, Beth. Uh, we're going to talk about this study that I first heard about in Scientific American. If you want to read the uh, the article in Scientific American, uh, the title of that article is Carnivores Make Low Estimates of Animal Minds. That's at scientificamerican.com, written by Morgan E. Peck. But I have the actual study right here in front of me. It comes from the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. And the name of the actual study by Brock Bastian and his colleagues is Don't Mind Meat, The Denial of Mind Animals Used for Human Consumption. And what Brock talks about in this and in some interviews he did with the University Press um, of the University of Queensland, where this is all uh, conducted and where he's at, the, um, the idea here is something he calls this meat paradox, where people tend to really like animals and love animals and have pets and think of them as being... Um, creatures that have minds. And when you watch a nature documentary, you think of those animals as having minds. But then when people eat meat, they're forced to deal with that idea. And they have to wonder whether or not this animal had thoughts or had emotions or at the very least it had fear or pain or um, had happiness or things like that. And so there's a motivation in order to enjoy and continue eating meat and continue seeking out things for any sort of um, carnivore, but especially for human beings who have these like, you know, thoughts that we can have that he, he, he hypothesizes that we dampen those sensations, those uh, conjectures so that we can continue to eat meat. To put it in, um, in his words, quote from the actual research, many people like eating meat, but most are reluctant to harm things that have minds. The current three studies show that this dissonance motivates people to deny the minds of animals or to deny minds to animals. So what um, he did, and this is, I love this research. It's so clever. He told his subjects that they were in a study that was studying um, the perception of animal minds or the perception of animals in general. And uh, so they didn't know about the whole food thing. And he had them fill out this questionnaire in which they uh, had, they had to talk about fish, crustaceans, amphibians, reptiles, mollusks, and insects. And then they had to rate whether or not those um, creatures experience hunger, fear, pleasure, pain, or rage. And then they also had to rate that they had self-control, morality, memory, emotion, recognition, and planning. And then they had to rate the edibility of each one of those creatures, whether from a, in a scale of um, one through seven, which at the at one end is definitely would not eat this, and the other end was definitely would eat this. And then um, they also had to say if it was morally wrong to eat this animal, at one end of the scale, one, not at all. At the other end, seven, extremely. And finally, they had to indicate whether or not they were themselves vegetarians, either yes or no. And uh, what they found out in this round of the research 
was that when a person rated something as having more of a mind, they also rated it as, as being less edible and in the other direction as well. If they rated something as having less of a mind, then it became more edible. It had more of a mind. It was less edible. So that was in the first round. In the second round, people listened uh, to the story about a cow or a sheep. And in that story, either that cow or sheep was um, described as being an animal that was going to live out its days on a farm eating grass and then, you know, dying a natural death, or it was going to live out its days eating grass on a farm and then be butchered and sold in a supermarket. And the two different groups who got the different descriptions were then asked each to rate how much of a mind, how, uh, how rich the inner mental life of that animal was. People who heard about an animal that was uh, destined to be eaten also rated that animal as having less of a mind than did people who learned about an animal that they didn't think was destined for a supermarket. In the final round of this uh, experiment, what they did is they put together a study where they had people um, write essays about where food comes from. They sort of had to write the story of an animal from birth into death that was destined to be going into a supermarket. And they were also told that at the end of doing that, they would have to eat something that the experimenters provided them. Uh, some people were going to eat a piece of lamb and some people were going to eat an apple. They didn't know that they were just separated into two groups and people could opt out and everything. But so they had people who knew they were going to eat some meat at the end of the study. And some people who knew they were going to eat an apple at the end of the study. And then they all wrote essays about the life of an animal. And, uh, they were told the experiment was about trying to maintain focus when you know there's food in the room or something like that. But uh, the actual study was trying to figure out how much, when they described those animals' lives, how much would they talk about that animal's feelings and thoughts and experiences. And so the people who, were, who knew they were going to eat meat tended to not include those kind of details. They, they, and the people who knew they were going to eat an apple tended to include those details much more often than did the meat eaters. So the whole study, he comes to the conclusion in the study that if you are tasked with eating an animal and you know you're going to eat an animal and you know you are a carnivore, you will also reduce the dissonance of knowing that the animal may have suffered or had a mind of its own by sort of deleting that from your thinking, at least while you are eating it and enjoying it. And then maybe you'll think about it some other time. So that's new research that comes from Brock Bastion of the University of Queensland in Australia. It's uh, published in the Personality and, and Social Psychology Bulletin, and you can find it at the headline, Don't Mind Meat, The Denial of Mind Animals Used for Human Consumption. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. You can find links to all the previous episodes on iTunes, on youarenotsosmart.com, at boingboing.net, where you can find other great podcasts like this one because we are part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. The intro music, that is by Caravan Palace. It is called Clash. This music you're hearing right now, that's by Banjo Apocalypse, and I use it throughout the show. Other music that you hear on the show is usually done by Drew Garraway. You can find me on Twitter at David McCraney. You can find the podcast and the blog at NotSmartBlog. And... If you want to go on Facebook and talk to me there, it's just facebook.com slash you are not so smart. Send your cookie recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. <laughs> <laughs>